This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Lost Episode 12 Happy Spring, listeners! For yes, despite what the weather feels like in some parts of the country, especially Wisconsin, it is spring. Officially. And it has been since the vernal equinox on March 20th this year. So, we're a bit late in wishing you a happy spring. Sorry about that. But we bring it up today because we're going to engage in an annual springtime tradition that is probably a lot older than you think. Spring cleaning. Spring cleaning is, of course, the practice of cleaning out one's own house. Once the winter has abated and you can open the windows to air the place out without freezing to death. At least, that's what our mothers told us. And living on the north side of the temperate band of America in places like the Northeast, the Northern Midwest, and the Pacific Northwest, we believe our mothers. It seemed to track. But interestingly, the tradition of spring cleaning is one that actually might have originated in a desert climate of all things. At least, the western version. The eastern version is a little different. Now, the Western spring cleaning tradition has two different possible origins, the Persian and the Jewish. And both remain in practice today. In ancient Persia, and in modern Iran, and other Middle Eastern nations, it is traditional to engage in the kuna tikkuni, which translates to shaking out the house. It's basically a ritual cleaning of the house that preceded the Persian New Year, which fell at the start of spring. Basically, it was just about cleaning up the house and getting rid of all the trash before the start of a fresh year. And that's actually very similar to an ancient Chinese practice that is also still observed today. See, the Chinese follow their own calendar based on lunar rather than solar cycles. We discussed this before in our episode entitled Zodiac. And that means that the Chinese year begins sometime in February. And the Chinese New Year is celebrated with what they call the Spring Festival. And before the Spring Festival, they prepare for said festival with a ritual known as Little New Year, or Xiaonyan. The tradition includes a very thorough house cleaning that falls sometime between the 8th and the 23rd day of the last month of the Chinese calendar. And it's important that it get done in this time, because Chinese tradition holds that during the last month of the year, ghosts, demons, and other supernatural entities have to choose to either return to the heavens or stay on earth. And the cleansing helps convince those beings to move on. For the same reason, it's traditional for Chinese folk, rich and poor, to bathe themselves and get a haircut before the spring festival. During this same period of time, when the mass transit lines between the spiritual realm and the earthly realm are open, it is also believed that a family's personal household guardian spirit, a kitchen god, returns to heaven to report on the family's behavior over the last year, and hopefully comes back to resume its guardian spirit duties. To make sure a favorable report is filed, and no, we're not making this up, it's traditional for Chinese families to offer tasty foods in sacrifice to the kitchen god. Things like candies and sweets, fruits, dumplings, bean paste, and a pig's head. Once the kitchen god has been sated, they are sent on their way via the expedient of burning a paper image of the spirit. And they are welcomed back for making their hopefully favorable report with a paper banner set beside the stove. 
The Jewish spring cleaning tradition is also religious in nature, which is uh, probably unsurprising. But it's a bit more somber, and it's connected to the tradition of Passover, which we have also described before on the show. Recall that Passover is a springtime remembrance of the Israelite slaves' flight from Egypt. Specifically, it is a remembrance of the night that the Hebrew god came down to Egypt and slayed every firstborn son except the ones in the houses the Israelites had marked with lamb's blood on the door. Thereafter, the Pharaoh was so enraged that he drove the Israelites from Egypt. And because they were forced to flee in haste, they were warned not to waste time before their pre-flight meal by leavening their bread. That is, using yeast or another similar agent to make the bread rise. In recognition of that event, traditional Jewish folk are forbidden from eating leavened bread during Passover. Moreover, they must remove all yeast and other leavening and fermenting agents from their homes before the Passover Seder. And so, it has become traditional for observant Jews to thoroughly clean their homes and make sure no speck or crumb of leavened food has been left behind. The hunt for stray crumbs is known as kametz, and is traditionally done by candlelight. Now, we are a secular podcast, but we are no less given to tradition. And so, we're engaging in spring cleaning ourselves, and that takes the form of another of our traditions— the tradition of taking all the cut content from previous episodes over the last three months and doling them out as a lost episode. And hopefully, these tasty little bits and pieces of fun content that didn't quite make it into our previous episodes will be enough to entice you, our listeners, to view us favorably and come back for another year of content. And maybe to give us a favorable evaluation on iTunes, or whatever makes this particular metaphor work. Though we will stop the metaphor short of burning you in effigy. But, before we begin with the sacrifice, as is also traditional for our lost episodes, we have to banish the ghosts of the errors we've made. And we've only got one as far as we know. And we caught it ourselves on re-listening to the episode once it went live. In our episode on the gelatinous cube... We incorrectly named Zagig as Gary Gygax's namesake Queen of Ooze, Fungus, and Mold from the original Dungeons of Castle Greyhawk. And frankly, we're surprised more grognards didn't call us out on that one. Zagig was indeed the creator of the original Dungeons of Castle Greyhawk, a trap-filled 13-level labyrinth built with seemingly no purpose at all except to entice adventurers into the maw of hungry monsters and the machinations of deadly traps in the hopes of recovering fantastic treasures. Only three players ever reached the bottom level of the dungeon. Rob Kuntz, Terry Kuntz, and Ernie Gygax, Gary's son and they discovered the truth about the labyrinth. It had been constructed by a mad god of humor, insanity, and chaos known as Zagig. And that was basically Gary, acknowledging that the nonsensical dungeon must have been built by a crazy person. As a fun fact, Zagig was later given the full name Zagig Irgern, which was based on Gary's full name, Ernest Gary Gygax, except spelled backwards. Kind of with some letters dropped, and some changed. Anyway, Zugtmoy was also a creation of Gary's, 
and she is a demon queen whose original form was that of a mushroom on a puffball on four thick legs with a humanoid face. She lived in the 222nd layer of the abyss, out of the original 666 layers before that was expanded to infinity layers, and she was a consort to the mad god Eas in the original Greyhawk setting. But she wasn't really detailed in the classic T-series of modules, the Temple of Elemental Evil series. She is served faithfully by a demon lord known as the Rancid Lady of Bitter Bile, who may be Zugtmoy's mother or daughter. It's not really clear. Either way, we are sorry about the confusion. How could we ever mix up Zagig and Zugtmoy? But hopefully, by cleaning up the confusion, we've banished both entities back to their home dimensions. While we're on the subject of China, or at least tangentially somewhat nearby the subject of China, we need to mention something that we had to cut out from our episode about tea. In that episode, we talked about the very early history of China. Very, very early history. And in fact, China has actually been instrumental in understanding the very earliest history of humanity, or rather the prehistory of humanity. See, the history of human evolution has always been, and remains to some extent, a bit of a mystery. And it was a particular archaeological discovery in China that allowed us to shed some light on some pretty important parts of it. See, there are a few specific traits that make humans human. Among the defining traits that biologists and anthropologists cite as the most human of traits, there's the large, complex brain, which includes the capacity for language and tool use, and the trait known as eusociality, which is the biological trait of forming large, complex, advanced social groups for mutual survival. But those are pretty recent developments in the history of the species. One specific trait is considerably older. That's bipedalism, walking on two legs. And it's extremely important because once you are only using half your four limbs for walking around, you can use the other two for more complex, specialized tasks, like flying in the case of birds, or making and manipulating tools in the case of humans. Tracking the development of these various human traits has been kind of a pain. We know that humans, chimpanzees, and gorillas share a common ancestor which lived about 8 million years ago in Africa. And we know that sometime around 4 million years ago, things kind of like humans started to show up in Africa as well. We know that those things migrated out of Africa into Asia Minor, and then Asia some 2 million years ago. And then they arrived in Europe about a million years ago. And scientists recognize about 15 or 20 different species of human-like primates that evolved in various places across that span of time before, in the last 100,000 years, they started developing all those other complex traits. The problem is deciding which of those species evolved into which and which ones simply died out and who coexisted at the same time and where and when and how to even classify them all. Complicating this is the fact that evolution is not, as we normally perceive it, a linear process of one creature evolving into another. It's a haphazard mess of traits arising and spreading and supplanting different traits in different places at different times until populations are gradually replaced. 
into the Peking Man discovery. And note there is not just one Peking Man. Well, today there's just one Peking Man fossil, but there wasn't just one individual known as the Peking Man. And the Java Man. Here's the story. In 1891, paleontologist and biologist Eugene Dubois discovered a fossil of an early hominid, a human ancestor, on the island of Java in Indonesia. It was the first proto-human fossil to be found outside of Europe, and based on its bone structure, it appears to have been the first proto-human to have walked upright instead of hunched over. Thus, it would eventually be called Homo erectus, which means upright human. And this fossil was thought to be the missing connection between apes and humans, the missing link that connected the fossil records of primates with those of human beings. The problem was that the Java Man, as it was called, was pretty primitive. It had a small skull with a small brain, and the ape-like skull didn't seem to match the more advanced femur bone. So it was thought to be a hoax, and Dubois was ridiculed and he wouldn't allow anyone to see his fossils, which only added fuel to claims that he had faked the fossils. Ultimately, Dubois died in disgrace in 1923. Meanwhile, though, in China, a set of limestone caves had been discovered. This was around 1921, in Zhu Kudian, near Beijing. It started when a local led a group of archaeologists to a place the locals called Dragonbone Hill. Johann Gunnar Andersson and Otto Zdansky recognized some of the fossilized bones on the hill as similar to human teeth. Over the next seven years, the caves beneath the hill were excavated and more than 40 specimens of early hominids, including six with complete skulls, were discovered. Other archaeologists were brought in over that time and they discovered a wealth of information. The fossils were similar to those of the Java Man, further examples of Homo erectus but they were hundreds of thousands of years old rather than tens of thousands of years old, which lent some credence to their primitive nature compared to more recent human fossils. But what was most important was everything else they found at the site. There was evidence of tool use, funeral rites, the hunting of large mammals, the use of fire, pretty advanced stuff for such an ancient primate. It showed that Homo erectus was more advanced than its bones would suggest, and that it probably wasn't a link between Homo sapiens, modern humans, and apes. Just a step in a much more complicated chain as we know it today. And the bones probably would have told us more, but they're gone. All of them. In 1937, the excavation ended because Japan had invaded China and had occupied Beijing. Scientists worked quickly to move the fossils to a safe at the Peking Union Medical College. As the Japanese invasion of China continued into the 1940s, scientists grew increasingly concerned about the safety of the fossils that still had so much to reveal about the evolution of humanity. And so, in November of 1941, they were packed up and transferred to a group of United States Marines for transport to America. En route to the port of King Huandao, the Marines were captured by the Japanese. And the fossils were never recovered. Since then, numerous groups, including the Chinese government, have funded searches for the missing Peking fossils, but to no avail. One theory is that they sank with the Japanese ship Awamaru in 1945. 
Fortunately, very accurate casts of most of the fossils still exist, as do monographs describing them. But the whereabouts of the bones themselves remain a scientific mystery to this day. Speaking of ancient mysteries, in our episode about banks, we mentioned the ancient Babylonian king Nimrod, the mighty hunter. But we left out one of the most interesting stories about Nimrod, which we were reminded of when we made all of those references to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy in our episode about the ten-foot pole. That is, that Nimrod might have been connected to the Tower of Babel, the tower after which Douglas Adams named a psychic fish that could translate any language for you if you stuck it in your ear. See, according to the book of Genesis, at some point in the ancient past, God sent a mighty flood to cleanse the world of evil, and he wiped out all of humanity except for one family, the family of Noah, who God judged to be the only righteous person worth saving. So, God warned Noah that the flood was coming and instructed him to build a massive ship, an ark, that would survive the flood. And into it, Noah would lead his own family along with a mating pair of every animal that lived on earth. After the floodwaters receded, Noah's family and all the animals would go forth and multiply and repopulate the world. Except, that's not quite what happened. Instead, the people gathered in a city in the land of Shinar, and they stayed there. They built a great city out of brick, and at the heart of the city, they built a great tower in their own honor. A tower, they hoped, that would reach heaven itself. And God was not happy about this, for a number of reasons. And so, he scattered humanity across the world himself, and to make sure they didn't get any clever plans about gathering in one spot and building another tower, he confounded their language so the various tribes could not communicate. And thus, the tower was called Babel, and so we derive the word Babel. So the story goes. What does any of this have to do with King Nimrod? Well, a couple of things, actually. See, Nimrod was the son of Cush, and Cush was the son of Ham, and Ham was cursed, as were all of his offspring, the tribe of Canaan. See, Noah had planted a vineyard, and that's fine. But Noah also liked his product a little too much. And so Noah got drunk and ran around naked. And Ham saw him naked, and instead of averting his eyes or covering Noah with a cloak or anything, Ham ran to tell his two brothers that Dad was running around naked, and they should come check it out. Ham's brothers came along, averted their eyes, covered their father, and escorted him home. Once Noah had sobered up, he was pretty annoyed with Ham, and so he cursed Ham's son Cush so that his offspring, the tribe of Canaan, would always be subservient to the other tribes, and Ham's kids would always be servants to Noah's other offspring and their descendants. Now Nimrod knew all of this, and so even though he became the great king of Babylon, he was never really secure in his power. He lived in constant fear that the rightful heir of Noah would come to claim his throne, and so gradually he banished all of the heirs of Noah's first son, Shem, from Babylon. All except one family, the family of Terah. See, Terah was extremely faithful to Nimrod, 
Like the other Babylonians, he believed Nimrod had been granted this throne by the gods and that Nimrod himself was a god. And so Nimrod took him as a trusted servant and even helped find him a wife so he could have a kid. And then, coincidentally, Nimrod's astrologers noticed a new star in the sky and they predicted a kid was about to be born that would challenge Nimrod's claim. So Nimrod had all of the pregnant women in the kingdom brought to his palace. When the mother gave birth, if it was a girl, she was lavished with gifts and sent home. If it was a boy, though, well, Nimrod didn't want any competition, and he was pretty brutal. So you can figure out what happened. And you also probably know where this is going. Terah's wife, of course, gave birth to a boy. Nimrod was heartbroken, but not heartbroken enough to be merciful. He commanded Terah to bring the boy before him. Terah, ever the faithful servant, did bring him a baby boy. But Terah, the good father, had substituted a servant's baby for his own, his real kid. Abraham was hidden in a cave, safely out of Nimrod's reach. And now you know the baby's name was Abraham. He turned out to be a faithful devotee of God and a figure of such importance that he's the reason that Judaism, Christianity, and Islam are all called the Abrahamic religions. What does any of this have to do with the Tower of Babel? Well, the Bible isn't particularly clear about who actually built the tower. But Shinar is the region that we call Mesopotamia. And there's where Babylon was. With us so far? Okay, now... Historians and scholars have tried to connect the Tower of Babel with various sites. And the Babylonians were pretty big into building these temple tower things which we now call ziggurats, and which we did a whole episode on a few years ago. Now the thing is, the kingdom of Babylon derives its name from, supposedly, the Sumerian phrase Babili, or gathering place of the gods. Alternatively, it has been rendered as Babylam, meaning a place where people come together. And in the heart of ancient Babylon, in the city of Borsippa, there was a tower temple called Birz Nimrod, the temple of Nimrod. And so it entered the folk culture that it was none other than King Nimrod who commissioned the Tower of Babel. And with that story, we've cleaned up our editing room floor. Spring cleaning is done, and we're ready to dirty up our space with discarded bits from another year's worth of episodes. And hopefully, hopefully, you'll give us a favorable evaluation with the gods of podcasting. Happy spring. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com.